before we get going, here's the bit where I remind you that nothing we discuss during the Super Terrific Happy Hour should be considered as investment advice. This conversation is for informational and hopefully entertainment purposes only. So while we hope you find it both informative and entertaining, to say nothing of super and terrific, of course, please do your own research or speak to a financial advisor before putting a dime of your money into these crazy markets. And now, on with the show. People always tell me, you should have your money working for you. Because you send your money out there working for you, a lot of times it gets fired. You go back there, what happened? I had my money, it was here, it was working for me. Yeah, I remember your own money. We had to let him go. Welcome everybody to... Another super terrific happy hour. <laughs> Joining me is the reason for all three of those adjectives, uh, the one and only Stephanie Pomboy. I have to come up with a good retort for that because um, generally I'm assumed to be the most gloomy person on the planet. Well, well, you see, that's precisely why you want to do this thing with me because uh, then you're pretty much safe. Oh, please. No, you are always smiling and happy. Always. So anyway, pleasure to see or hear you. <laughs> Likewise. Likewise. Now, we have a guest joining us today, a mutual friend of ours who uh, you've actually introduced me to um, uh, a few years ago, and he's always so much fun to talk to, and that is Peter Atwater. But before we get Peter Atwater to join us uh, and talk about the world, I wanted to talk to you about the piece you put out this week um, called Buckling, which is all about the dollar, because it's it's... I read it yesterday, or when was it? Yesterday, yesterday I read it. And, um, <laughs> Seems like a year ago already. <laughs> <laughs> no, but it, it, it was, it's just so brilliantly put, Steph, honestly. It's, I mean, the dollar is something that everyone's got an opinion on, I guess necessarily in most cases, uh, and everyone's been looking at. Half the people have been right, half the people have been wrong. If you go back six months, each mm-hmm. was in the other camp, and everyone gets stressed out about it. Yeah. But, the, but the, the piece you wrote, I, I thought, just laid out so many of these pieces so beautifully so i just want to kind of walk through it with you if i can sure. get you to kind of lay out what you were talking about and i'll i'll pipe in with a dumb question every now and again well i wrote it honestly because i was trying to understand what was going on with the dollar myself because as i look at the you know my bloomberg screen and where the stock market is and what's happening in credit and what's happening with commodity prices and gold The dollar just didn't fit into any narrative that I could construct. So I was puzzling as to, you know, what could I be getting wrong? So basically, I wrote the piece as an exercise in trying to cross out the possible explanations for, for what's going on there. And I think, I guess, uh, I don't really take as, uh, gospel, what the going narrative was. And the going narrative was just, you know, this is risk on. So you can uh, toss out all the safe havens like the dollar and treasuries. Yeah. And that's why um, it's been going down in pretty significant fashion um, in the face of what seemed to me to be uh, fundamental data that would suggest it should be going the other way. You know, if if we have a vaccine and the economy is going to recover and we're closer to getting the stimulus bill that the market keeps going ping-ponging back and forth on, that should be good for growth, which should, you would think, um, be good for the dollar, particularly since, as I scanned the uh, global equity markets, it looked like the U.S., relative to all the developed economies, was a strong outperformer. It wasn't as yeah. though people were saying, well, the US is going to do great with the vaccine, but Europe and the UK are going to do so much better. Because when you look at the the uh, performance of the S&P, it's bested all of those markets pretty handily. Uh, the one area where the US and developed economies have been put sort of sidelined is versus the emerging markets, where you know people have said, well, if it's good for the developed economies, then it's their warrants on global growth, so they'll do even yep. better. Um, and then, of course, you know, Biden, with the shift in sort of the U.S. stance toward China, would help boost the Chinese economy and all the emerging economies around that as well. So you layer that on top of it. Problem is that we're all looking at the DXY dollar index, and it's going down, and none of those emerging market 
currencies are represented in that dollar right. index. Exactly. So that's not the answer. So, you know, I kept puzzling around as to, all right, um, if it's not that everyone is fleeing the U.S. in favor of better investment alternatives, um, what is going on with the dollar here? Um, and, you know, again, I was puzzling because you have this concomitant backup in treasury yields, which again, you know, fits with the idea of a stronger economy. But, you know, the only explanation I could come up with for why the dollar would be weaker and treasury yields would be rising is that foreigners are selling treasuries. Right. So I went and looked at the Fed's custody account because it's the most timely window we have into what's happening with foreign purchases of treasuries. And it turns out that not only aren't they selling, uh, they've been buying in possibly the most <laughs> aggressive fashion we've seen since the global financial crisis, which is amazing. And it's kind yeah. of silent in the background. People don't really, only nerds like me, sit there and look at the Fed's custody account. But since the election, the Fed's uh, foreign treasury holdings at the Fed are up almost 70 billion. That's in five months' time. You annualize that. You're talking about- Five weeks. About, That's five weeks. Sorry, five weeks. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Thank you annualize that, you're talking about almost $700 billion a year in central bank purchases of treasuries. I mean, no one would rightly assume that you're going to sustain that pace, but it, it puts into context the magnitude of the, the purchases. When I saw that, and I saw, you know, it was happening in terms of specs, you know, which was the last possible explanation, you know, maybe hot money speculators are wagering yeah. heavily on a dollar decline. And uh, so I looked at the CFT positions, CFTC positions there and found that, yes, they've been overwhelmingly short the dollar versus the euro, the yen, et cetera. Um, they had actually been reducing those positions in the last several weeks over the period that the dollar declined. So when I when I step back, I was even more confused and I'm thinking, <laughs> okay, if all these forces are supporting the dollar and it's going down, that's a terrifying statement about what the underlying right, uh, exactly. fundamentals behind the dollar are right now um, and how much weaker the dollar would be were it not for the 700 billion annual pace of foreign central, central bank banks, purchases yeah. and speculators covering some of their short exposure, et cetera. Um, so, you know, I don't know if and when that reality will be revealed. I suspect it will just because my thesis, as you and I have talked about over and over again, uh, is that uh, once we get the vaccine distributed, this idea that the economy just takes off like a rocket um, is going to prove, uh, let's say, a tad overly optimistic. And at that yeah, point, yeah. you know, maybe the dollar's true underlying weakness will will become uh, apparent. Well, I mean, look, you, when you when you got to the end, because um, I'm reading it, and every page I'm turning, it's, I mean, it's like a it's like a thriller. It's like the, the most nerdy <laughs> thriller of all time. I really go, so what the hell is it then? Oh my but, god! But you get, but when you had that chart of the um, bond yields in the US, the uh, UK, yeah. and the EU, yeah, you know that that was a real. Just when you think, okay, it all makes sense, you throw that chart in there. Just talk about that, because right. when I saw that chart, I was like, wow, that really makes no sense. Well, exactly. I mean, actually, I was just looking at this Bloomberg, you know, God bless them. They have a table, which they must update every day, of uh, the current level of global bond yields. And, you know, the U.S. at 0.95 is head and shoulders above pretty much every market out there, the only economy in the you know industrial world that actually has higher yields and marginally so is Australia, yeah. at I think one point oh three percent or something like that. But everywhere else, Germany, Denmark, Japan, UK, um, substantially lower. So you would think that money would be flying into U.S. fixed income to capture that yield, um, which just again. Uh, adds to the mystery of why the dollar is so weak and why flows aren't rushing in. Or maybe it's not a mystery. Maybe it's a statement about the difference between Main Street's perception of where the U.S. economy is headed, i.e., 
U.S. companies that are transacting in global currencies and need to, you know, hedge potential uh, declines in the dollar versus Wall Street's perception of how we're just going to take off and and it's going to be phenomenal. Well, I mean, just for good measure, you threw in that consumer credit report. It, it looked to me like <laughs> that came in after you'd finished writing and you kind of... Yes. Dump! I had this beautifully rounded piece, but then you see those um, consumer credit numbers, which were like 50% below... Expectations, right, yes. For October. Yep, and another... Um, reduction in credit card balances so they just the consumer continues to pay down debt and i actually tweeted out today there was another one of these delightful headlines uh, on bloomberg talking about the massive amount of cash on the sidelines and they were pointing to the household saving rate saying well all this money is going to come into the stock market right, right. Uh, because you know there's no way people are going to sit on all this saving well if they were paying any attention to the consumer credit report i guess maybe they wouldn't be quite so confident that people are going to rush out to uh spend that saving i mean there's clearly a but that involves interpreting two charts not one right <laughs> Which is, uh, let's, let's double the work. Besides, I mean, yeah. it's so much more fun to talk about how much money is going to flow into the stock market. That money yeah, mountain, yeah. that cash on the sidelines yes. thesis. I mean, I don't know how many years that's been around, but I remember that from the days when I was at ISI. And that's, you know, 18 years ago. So yeah. <laughs> uh, I guess if you repeat the lie often enough, maybe. Yeah, right. Well, it, it is, it's, look, it's a fantastic report. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put you on the spot here, which... I'll do, but if you if you if you fail miserably, we'll just edit it out so no one will ever know I put you on the spot. But but would you if if people wanted to read this report, would you share it with them? Because I just I just think it's such I a would, timely yes. piece. Um, you, you're putting me on the spot with uh, with well, ample I, I, notice ahead of time that you were going to do that. <laughs> so I will I will uh, begrudgingly say yes. I I would. You see, look, you've just and just like that, the magic of podcasting evaporates. No, it's the magic of Grant Williams. Evaporates. The magic <laughs> evaporates. Well, look, just just um, how how can people request a copy of it? Because it's it's short. It's a it's a great read, and, and I think I think it's if they go to macromavens.com and go to the more information section, uh, they can request uh, Perfect. that and we'll just reply to them and send them a copy of How that report. That? Yes, I just thought. Now, uh, I mean, if, uh, if anyone with an interest in the dollar, trust me, you are going to want to read this report. You I are you um, a very uh, low paid marketing department for me. <laughs> <laughs> Well, listen, uh, maybe maybe may low, but I'm paid exactly what I'm worth. Yeah, so that's everyone's getting so someone not out of this. true. Oh my so god, yeah, well. I couldn't afford to pay you what you're worth. But well, listen, let's let's change the subject and talk about our guest who's joining yes. us. Because um, and in fact, nice. why don't you introduce him? Because you knew him before I did, which kind of grates with me. But I'm going to let it slip. <laughs> well, actually, I was trying to figure out how I met Peter. Um, and I think I met him way back in the days of Minionville, which is a long time ago. Um, <laughs> but when I met uh, Peter, he was actually kind of segueing. I won't use the word transitioning for fear of creating the wrong impression. <laughs> yes. We don't um, want a hashtag in front of this podcast. Thank you very much. Uh, from having spent many years in the financial sector, um, in you know banking finance yeah. not just you know in investment um and so actually i i want to quiz him although we'll talk to him about his uh mood in the markets and all the work he's doing there i do want to quiz him on what he thinks about what's uh on the cards for the financial sector as well but yeah. um so i got to know peter over that time actually i came to meet him right when the whole uh, housing bubble was starting to deflate, and a lot of us were putting the uh, dominoes, you know, lining up the dominoes to what it would mean for the for the financial sector. And that's how Peter and I met. And so it was a very exciting time, obviously, as we sat there trying to quantify what the potential hit to all these banks would be from the subprime bust. Um, while you know uh, the consensus was that those stocks were impenetrable and we're going to continue to move higher. Yeah, so. contained, contained. Bear Stearns was fine. We all, we right, all remember everything. just how everything was, everything um, was okay. And none less than, of course, Ben Bernanke offering those assurances. But um, since then, 
as you know, and I know you've talked to Peter, um, he's sort of made a segue into really talking more about the mood and the popular mood and how it's reflected in it's really fascinating to read his reports and how he encapsulates uh the entire mood of the country um and ways that it expresses itself in even in financial headlines that people might not understand the degree to which you know there's a story behind that um, that really relates to what's happening in in popular mood, and uh, it's going to be very interesting and timely to talk to him now, given the year we've been through and and this yeah. apparent turning point that we're at in terms of having the vaccine and and yeah. uh, this euphoric market response. Absolutely right. I mean, I would say with all this vaccine news, there's in my mind no better time to yeah. to invite Peter to come and talk to us. So. With all that being said, why don't we uh, why don't we introduce him, Peter Atwater? Come on in. Thanks so much, Grant. It's 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 great that we get to see each other, even though the people listening to this don't get to see us. Uh, They're missing these out. These things. It is nice to <laughs> it is nice to see people's faces, not so much some of the backgrounds that you kind of get distracted by when people have these god awful bookshelves with all these books that you kind of wonder if they've read or not. But it's nice to see you've got a bit of space behind you. <laughs> Over the garage today. Yeah. <laughs> so, so Steph and I were just we were just talking about um, what a perfect time it is to talk to you, given the the upsurge in euphoria around the vaccine and mm-hmm. stuff. So, b- before we get to what you're seeing with that and some of the science signals that, that it's throwing off for you, just just if you wouldn't mind in your own words, just just tell people what it is you focus on and, and how you kind of interpret those signals and what you're looking to achieve with that. So, I look for behavior you know, specifically group behavior and what do people think? What are the stories they're telling themselves? Um, How do the stories mirror what they're doing? Um, I I work in both directions. I look at, you know, what are the actions and what what is sentiment? Um, You know, we act as we feel and remarkably we learn nothing. And so we do the same (laughs) things over and over. It's so true, right? So, 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 before we get to today, let's let's backtrack because this this pandemic, I think for everybody, has been such an emotional roller coaster. To use that trite old phrase, so I mean, what have you seen? Because your sentiment metrics and gauges must have been pinging you all over the place these last eight months. Talk a little bit about about what kind of a ride it's been, and if if it's been impossible to to find the signal in the noise. So, start the year, there was euphoria. Um, investor euphoria, but as important to me, political euphoria. Uh, back in early February, there were you had a president who had been um, acquitted from an impeachment perspective, and there was a sense of invincibility that existed widespread, you know, from the White House across the Republican Party, and I think that's a really important setup for what we've seen since then. Um, because you had both political and economic sentiment all in the same space, and then both collapsed into into March. And this sense in the middle of March of absolute hopelessness, things were going to get worse with the pandemic, things were going to get worse with the economy. Um, You had all of the classic signals of panic, Um, you know, People were Googling the word unprecedented like never before, (laughs) right? And so that to me marked a major low. What's so wild about what's happened since then is there have clearly been multiple paths. I talk about the K-shaped recovery, but those at the top, this has been an inconvenience, They've they've migrated to working at home. The Fed had their back. You know, fiscal policy. It, it's it's like watching um, the the term I'm using more and more is it, this is Downton Abbey, where <laughs> during smallpox, those you know on the estates were able to navigate it in isolation. Meanwhile, everybody else is suffering. Mm-hmm. 
I heard some politician, I'm not going to remember who it was, interviewed the other day and they were defending the lockdowns. And this woman said, being told that you have to stay home is a privilege. It's comfortable. It's, you know, and she went on to describe in, you know, uh, lofty tones how comfortable and easy it is to be at home. Well, obviously, she lives in a place that affords her a lot of comfort that I, I would guess the big swath of the population you're referring to um, has no sense of whatsoever. No, they're, they're, and, and remarkably, and what's so tragic to me is the vast majority of America is invisible. Mm-hmm. to those who are isolating. I mean, yeah. truly, they, they don't have to leave their homes. You know, you've got DoorDash and Uber and, yeah. you know, Amazon. You know, it's all being delivered. Meanwhile, people who are responsible for getting food, you know, delivering everything that is needed, um, yeah, they, they can't stay at home. And, and even if they could, the conditions are yeah. just so different. Right. So, so, Peter, do you do you think that was reflected in the election? Because when when I hear you talk about that, it makes me think, why didn't Trump win? Because there be so, and when you look at the the electoral map by county, it's extraordinarily red mm-hmm. right across the entire country. So, do you think Trump would have fared much worse had it not been for that dynamic you just just talked about? So, I think that. And I think both parties are guilty of this because um, I don't think either party did a good job. They, the, the two political parties believe the biggest divide is left-right. Mm. Both of them are missing. It's up-down. Yeah. And I think if, if President Trump had been more inclusive of the urban poor in his message, this would have been a very different outcome. Similarly, I think if the Democrats had been more cognizant of the rural poor, poor, you know, the non-metropolitan poor, yeah, the result would have been even even more compelling. But they're so focused on the the this right-left relationship battle. It's like, guys, somebody's going to come out of the blue who can unify the working class of this country and create a revolution if, if the two parties aren't careful. Do you see that? Do you see any person like that when you look across the landscape? I don't see that person today. Hmm. But, but what's been so interesting about 2020 is the speed at which movements, grassroots efforts mm-hmm. have coalesced into national movements. Yeah. Um, and so I, what, what I don't know is, and, and you know, they will always be out there, is what's the unifying event that draws those at the bottom together in opposition to those at the top? Because mm-hmm. I, I think the elite are extraordinarily vulnerable here. Yeah. yeah. Well, that George Floyd incident seemed to be one of those events yeah but but it but it was polarizing at the same time Mm -hmm. because it became about power not economics and i think if if the dynamic changes to a conversation around economics then these dividing lines get really scrambled up again peter obviously the to me the 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 clearest, I won't say the biggest, but the clearest dividing line is is economy versus stock market. You know, that that's a place that you can look at, at just about all the inputs um, and get a very, very different story. And, it, and again, this is this is this feeds into that up down uh, struggle that you talk about. So so just talk a little bit about what you see that that disconnect and, and how you kind of either explain that away or or whether you can't. Well, I, you know, I look at DoorDash today. So, so we're, we're doing this interview in the afternoon. DoorDash has just gone public. And it's remarkable to me. We, we now have a company that's worth $50 billion that is driven by 
an ability to hire, well, not hire, subcontract. Right. To, <laughs> yeah, right. right? So, so it, it's monetizing the gig economy. I, I tweeted earlier today, it's, it's like the upstairs doing an IPO on the downstairs and advertising in this prospectus that the reason this is the downstairs is so valuable is because we don't pay them anything. <laughs> Right, right. And, and I think that's, that's the dilemma that we're seeing across, you know, the corporate space is the companies themselves are incredibly profitable, but on the backs of, of workers, you know, you look at Amazon, you, you, can, you can go through the list, um, and nobody believes that they will ever be able to come together, that, that workers, you know, the union is dead, collective bargaining is dead. I, whew, I, I wouldn't bet on that if things get worse. Mm -hmm. But, but you know, I, have to, I have to wonder what it would take for that to, to happen, because you would think, given what's happening, given just the, the amazing disparity in performance, that by now people would have kind of cottoned on to what's going on here. They would have figured out that, you know, the rich should not only keep getting richer, but the pace at which they're getting richer has picked up nonstop almost since since that, that V bottom March low in the stock market. Nothing to do with the equity market. And and we're uh, nothing to do with the, the economy, sorry, but and, and now we're seeing some of these charts. And you you I think it was you that coined the K shape recovery. You were very mm -hmm. early on that. Um and that's what's playing out now. We're seeing a lot of these charts starting to roll over uh, and if you put the S&P 500 against just about any metric whether it's retail whether it's consumer whether it's travel whether it's leisure whatever the K is there for all to see it, does that mean perhaps that we're at that point now where the, the, the what you just spoke about becomes more and more likely I think what's prevented it to date Grant has been the belief that when the pandemic ends mm -hmm people will return to what was at the beginning of 2020. And remember, you know, coming into this year, you saw nice wage growth, particularly for those at the bottom. You saw you know, a sense that things were really beginning to click. And so that, that mythology is really compelling to people who believe that the pandemic is an event. The, the challenge will be if, if we don't see additional fiscal stimulus for those at the bottom, if this takes longer for the, the vaccine, that, that conditions do deteriorate, then I think you have that sense of hopelessness, that sense of being unheard, that, that manifests into collective behavior. Ultimately, that cake can be resolved by having what you're talking about, where the low end just continues to deteriorate and you don't get that support. And if that chain, that link in the chain breaks, that could fuel the risk off that just annihilates that top end of the K that's been living in la la land in this euphoric market, wouldn't you think? Or is that not how it how it gets resolved? I, I think it does get resolved. And, and uh, step two, to your point, in every dimension. So the shareholder is you know, brought forth as being a, an adversary. So we're gonna go after the elite in demanding wages versus shareholder dividends. Um, you know, you're not gonna see companies enabled to eliminate employees and buy back shares, right? <laughs> you know, you know, you know that the the Exxon story about culling employees to pay the dividend. Well, you know, if if mood shifts, um, that's going to be a really tough sell. And so you can go through all of the levers that have benefited those at the top, and start to flip them pretty quickly in the other direction. Well, that's what. Now, kind of interesting about the reaction to the election outcome is this. I mean, I understand that there's this consensus that the Republicans will hold the Senate. So basically, we've got four years of gridlock. But even if that is true, and it's not clear that it is, this, you know, the first thing that Biden is going to do is reconstitute the CFPB that, 
you know, was basically neutered under Trump and all the financial regulation. Can't they just with a stroke of a pen bring all that back? Isn't that a major threat to the markets? So you have you have regulation as a threat. You know, I, I would put out there that you have higher interest rates as a threat. You know, I, I think the whole concept of modern monetary theory is only can only exist when interest rates are near zero. So the higher rates go, the more you're going to see opposition to monetizing debt, stimulus, you know, excessive stimulus. So, so you're in this situation where you know you have higher rates, you have lower profits, you things translating right into those time value of money calculations at every turn, and and suddenly what looked like a great stock market becomes very vulnerable. I was going to cast back and ask you, given the amount of euphoria that we see right now, which strikes me as pretty much some of the most extreme I can recall, are there periods that you view as parallel or analogous in any way? Or do you think that we're not yet at, I mean, I guess what I'm trying to figure out, what I'm trying to get you to say is where are we on the arc of euphoria? Are we, are we at the end? Is there uh, more, more pain for some of us to come? <laughs> so, so I think we have, I mean, nothing exceeds like excess. And so it, you know, it becomes dangerous saying, you know, this is the week when right. stupidity yeah. finally yeah. went <laughs> to idiocy or, you know, whatever the, you know, whatever happens at the, the mania top. But I do think we are either the moment has just passed or is the moment is rapidly approaching because the, the consensus, the, the belief that once we get past this pandemic, pandemic, it's going to be unicorns and rainbows for as far as the eye can see. Um, you know, yeah. it just, in, and in everything, I think that's the thing, Steph, that's so wild about where we are, is everywhere I look, it's mania. Cryptocurrencies, yeah. in, in bonds, sovereign debt in Europe, you, you just go one category after another and go, is, is nothing sane? <laughs> Energy, I would throw into the mix, but, perhaps. Um, Peter, just uh, talking about that, you, you, you mentioned the C word, which um, is, uh, is normally taboo uh, in podcasts. But in this case, uh, we're, let's talk about it because cryptocurrencies have before been a great barometer for, for turning points. I'm in, glad you clarified that because I was setting. wondering what the C word is. <laughs> <laughs> I don't use the C word. Well, you, 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 I've got it all on tape. But, um, but you know, crypto this time versus December 2017, do you see similarities, parallels? Is this time different? It feels actually there's a little bit more substance to the crypto rally, this particular Bitcoin rally this time, because it's not dragging all this other nonsense with it. But, but when you look at the cryptos, what do you make of what's happening right now? So I, I look at cryptos in the same way I look at EVs, the same way I look at SpaceX. It's, it's a very futuristic, you know, transformational, what could be Futurama concept. And so I don't view it in, as a hedge for this or a hedge for that. I think it's a, it's a real transformational new age instrument. And those only come out to play at extremes and sentiment. Mm -hmm. I agree with you that this feels different from December 2017. I mean, nobody's going to talk about it at the Thanksgiving table. But at the same time, I would say what's so interesting is the smart money does not believe it could ever be stupid today. The, the, the narrowness of the belief system on this one is fascinating. It's a lot of, it's, it, it's so concentrated in so few hands, yeah. that the marginal buyer here, that I think they run the risk 
of having created a cabal that collapses on itself. What are the numbers there? Two percent of the holders own ninety-five yeah, percent, or something like that. Yeah, something like that. Yeah, and and so it's it's sort of to, to me it's it's like so what do you what do these two percent do when they're done mm-hmm. buying? You know, where's where's the next bid coming from? There's nobody. Well, obviously, but but it's interesting you, you say that, Peter, this week particularly because we've seen um, MicroStrategy try to sell four hundred million dollars of, uh, of convertible notes to buy more Bitcoin. So, I mean, there you can look at that two ways, right? You can either say, "Here's a visionary who's putting his money where his mouth is," and and you know, I've I've seen Michael Saylor talk; he's a, a very erudite, very smart guy. You could also throw it and say, "Well, he's trying to get more air in the bubble and keep this thing." Going up when you when you look at things like that, companies deliberately turning themselves into proxies for these high flying assets. What what kind of lessons do you take from past periods of similar nature? So I take a couple of observations there. One is it's telling to me that you know we have record prices and now is the time we're adding leverage to the situation. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So that to me is always a a, a bell ringer. But I also think, to your point, there is this belief among the smart money guys that the retail crowd is now going to follow in, that they can take this, you know, they're never going to, they don't believe they could possibly be the bag holders. Mm-hmm. They think that they've elevated the price. Now is the time that the crowd is going to look and go, oh, we've got to, you know, we're going to jump yeah. in. And that two percent thinks they're now going to quietly exit as the, this crowd rushes in. I, whew, I'm not seeing that happening this time. I, I, as I said, I think this is has the potential to be an enormous head fake. This seems parallel to what we were talking about earlier with the money mountain and the cash on the sidelines and this idea. You know the headline today that uh, there's all this money and pent up saving, and it's going to come into the stock market. It's the same idea, you know, that hey, you know, when the, when the dumb money comes in, we can all gracefully exit. Um, but that idea has been around for a long time now. It's just on steroids, as you say, in in the Bitcoin space for sure. I, I just have to put a timestamp on the moment in this podcast, like every podcast I do, when I lose the uh, Bitcoin audience. So uh, I just want to make it 40, 43 odd minutes. So, okay, just, just want to make sure. So, um, Peter, just looking across the landscape, your, your, your Twitter feed is always must read stuff for me because you, you have a habit of not only identifying these articles that I read them and I kind of go, oh, that's interesting. And then I read them with an annoyingly clever pun that you seem to come up with and they're way better than mine. And I read it in a whole new way and it, the importance of those headlines hits home in a much clearer way. So what, which headlines have you, I know you've been tweeting a lot about SPACs, um, so perhaps talk a little bit about how important you think those are and for what reasons, but what other things are you, do you keep seeing headlines about that are on your radar? So of late, the metals. Um, I, the commodity space is interesting to me from a media perspective in that you never hear about commodities mm-hmm until they're within the 10-yard zone, 10-yard line of the end zone. Um, it's a fascinating, and I, you know, behaviorally, I, I'd love to get inside the media's head, but you, you never see articles about platinum, around you know, these bizarre metals. Lumber was my favorite this summer. Yeah, right. You know, all of a sudden, mid-August, there are these big articles in the Wall Street Journal about lumber. And that's that to me is such a classic indicator that, okay, this weird thing is now getting attention. It's we're we're getting it's close. Lumber to time. Right. It's <laughs> lumber time. Uh commodities just and aren't so, sexy. That's the problem. Bitcoin's so much more interesting, right? Yeah, but 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 even then, you know, we had this week we had a you know big victory lap article. You know, all the, all the people who were smart who got in. Mm-hmm. Um, so that, that also gets my, my attention. Um, let's talk about SPACs. 
Um, you know, let's let's just start with what they are: blank check companies. Um, not sure from a sentiment perspective. There's a product that reveals itself so <laughs> transparently. Right. Um, you know, this is the, they are the ultimate sentiment barometer. Yeah. And yeah. and what I love about them is they're this fun Venn diagram. You know, they're they're one circle, but everything that seems to be overlapping into it is another <laughs> mania. Yeah. So payments, space. EVs, it's, you know, I'm just waiting for the, the Bitcoin entity to go public via, via SPAC. That, that, would, that to me would be a, you know, a home run. But what you're also starting to see, and I, my you know, jaw drops, but not surprising. And, and this actually reminds me of something, an experience Steph had at the top of the, of the dot-com bubble. And I don't know if she remembers telling this story, but at the top of the dot-com bubble, Steph, you, you said that you were approached by people who were raising money. Oh, yeah, I was just going to say this. Go for, ahead, tell the story. For, com- story. for companies in the pre-idea stage. Is that what you were trying to write? Yeah. <laughs> wait, wait, wait for it. I think I, I feel an idea coming up. <laughs> Yeah, they, they were how, how much are you looking for, Steph? Because like, you've had some good ideas over the years. Just a couple hundred million. <laughs> yeah, I mean, they were they were raising money. They didn't have the people, but they they thought that they knew the smart people to go get right, exactly whatever the idea yes. was. <laughs> and I and I saw today that that we now have SPACs that are going to go public at a premium to the unit price because. Investors are so convinced that these SPAC sponsors know exactly the folks to wow. get. Right. They've got the magic crystal ball that they're. <laughs> yeah. Oh my God. It is so <laughs> much like the dot com bubble. I, that was the first thought I had when you started describing it. But, let, but let's let, let's kind of pick this apart because I, I find this fascinating too. Because I, I like you, Steph. I, this reminds me so much of the. Of the you know the the companies I remember reading descriptions on Bloomberg talking about how they you know they were going to launch a business but at the moment they weren't a business but they've just raised you know a hundred back then tiny but tiny amounts a hundred million but um, but but Peter what is it that is it just purely this ocean of liquidity and more importantly perhaps the belief that no matter what happens the solution is more liquidity is that what's doing this you think or is there something more to it because it, it seems like these bells are going off absolutely everywhere yeah i i think the fed and other central banks unknowingly or maybe knowingly in their response to the pandemic made it absolutely clear i mean they, they were writing words on the side of a barn we have your back and we will not allow asset values to fall. And, you know, you saw in March, you know, normally lows in the market are met by fear. Mm-hmm. But what you saw with the Robinhood traders, what you saw with the, the, mm-hmm. you know, the, the Davy Day traders, was this enormous Mark, you know, rallying cry. This, this, you know, now is the time to get in. And I've never seen a low where people were so universally retail investors were universally enthusiastic because you, it was not about being smart. This, this was, this was the Fed is going to rescue you. And this boat is not going to just rise. It's going to bounce, you know, up out of the water. And they've been rewarded. And, and, it's, and so it puts the Fed in a big bind, you know, because, you know, t- talking about the case-shaped recovery, that's not anything new. I mean, this whole past decade has been an environment where the top have done really well while the bottom hasn't. And I don't think people appreciate 
that the resonance of that theme is what's so important about the K-shaped recovery. Because I, it has put out into the vernacular in a very simplistic, easy to understand, widely accepted notion that things are not fair, that inequity has become too extreme. And I think it's painting the Fed into a box because they cannot go back and save the elite again. Because they would try. I mean, we have protests at the Bank of France already. Well, the French love a protest. They'll protest anything <laughs> the French. But they, they, they don't mind. Yeah, I mean, I, I guess, do you think that this is why the Fed seems to be so terrified right now? I mean, their reaction to Mnuchin reclaiming that money uh, for the credit facilities was, I would say, borderline hysterical. Um, And shockingly so to me, considering that in terms of how much they had actually deployed, which was essentially zero dollars, you know, ostensibly they serve no role. So what's the big fuss? But it symbolically, it was so important, it seems like, to your point about that confidence that the Fed has the markets back. And I think that. You know, policymakers, I suspect, know very clearly, they only work top down. The only way monetary policy functions is through the banking system, through financial assets, boosting those at the, boosting the wealth of those at the top. I think that the middle market program was an attempt on the part of the Fed to try to demonstrate that they could do something from the middle. They clearly recognize that they cannot lend to those at the bottom. Um, you know, that, that's a risk they can't take. And, and so I think that for the Fed, holding on to that was an attempt on their part to say, hey, look, we are trying to do something beyond enriching the, the Hamptons. And I think that the Fed is going to come under greater and greater attack as as it becomes clear that, no, you, you only help yeah. the rich. Isn't that going to yeah. push us inevitably toward MMT? So that's that to me is the question. I think, you know, as I sit here today looking at the markets, you, you can you have to make a call on MMT. MMT mm-hmm. is hyperinflation the future. You know, is is this simply the first wave of a much greater wave higher, where we devalue the currency in exchange for the perception of sustainable assets, asset values, um, or is this the end of the line? And do do financial assets have to begin to Except reality, um, and I, I, you know, I think both of those scenarios are are, you know, potentially exist. It's a it's a real fork in the road. Mm-hmm. Either either way, I think inflation is is inevitable. Yeah, it may take I, some deflation first, but but I think inflation is is inevitable. The, the other the other thing that feels inevitable, um, <clears throat> and again, I'm sure this is something that you've been paying close attention to is the quote unquote great reset um, that we keep reading about and and this this kind of ominous sounding phrase crops up in all sorts of places it, it came from the I think the WEF uh, with a with a with a kind of architects of it but it's being parroted by just about everybody as is this other phrase building back better you know we are we are seeing very, very clearly now, if you're paying any attention whatsoever, that there is a framework being eased into place here um, that is pretty ubiquitous because I guess the problems are the same all around the world and so the solutions are probably going to need to be the same. When, when you, uh, Am I being a, a tinfoil hat guy or <laughs> when you read that stuff, do you, what are you seeing in, in, in those phrases and others like them? 
what I sense in those phrases is incredible tension between maintaining a global economy and responding to national pressures at the same time. Um, you know, looking at the 2020 election, it didn't matter to me who the winner was. America was going to become more nationalistic um, because that's where that's where mood is is driving us. Um, and so this need to be more self-sustaining, um, you know, the just in case economy as opposed to the just in time economy um, and, you know, the inefficiencies that go along with it. The, the challenge for policymakers is going to be maintaining currency relationships through this challenging turbulence um, because currencies become a weapon. And, you know, you, you can, I think, I think we're, we're reaching a point in Europe where the ECB is going to have to begin to respond to the dollar weakness. Um, you know, how's China going to respond to the strength in the in the yuan? Um, hmm. You know, both of those currencies seem um, ripe for a, an unexpected turnabout, potentially at this, you know, nearing the same time. Which should hopefully be good for gold, but hey, <laughs> I've given up trying to to hope for that. You know, Grant asked earlier about uh, headlines that are getting your attention right now, and I wanted to ask you to cast back to your prior uh, career and ask you if any of the financial sector headlines have captured your attention, because I'm sitting here looking at a clipping that I took out of the paper last week. Uh, GM plans to That's to so seek. old school, Steph. Yeah, That's it so is. old school. It's, Clipping out of a newspaper. A, oh, I thought you were going to say from last <laughs> week, which is now like 10 years ago. No, no, ago. no. I just meant I'm actually clipping out the newspaper. I that's, do that. that's impressive. GM plans to seek banking charter. Uh, and to me, that just, you know, got my hair standing on end because uh, obviously they got out of the finance business right after the Great Recession. And here they are now at what I would argue is the absolute extreme in the credit cycle, um, looking to get back in. But do you see any other, aside from the SPAC thing, I mean, are there any things like that that kind of um, get your attention these days as opportunities? Yeah, so let's, let's stick with GM. Mm. So, you know, the headlines, I don't know if it was last week or the week before, but, you know, GM going all in on EVs. Mm -hmm. um, that step is very consistent with the same mindset that you've just said. You know, they, they are culturally in a place where the future feels really, really bright and they're looking to capitalize on it. You know, uh, look at their, their misguided attempt with, with Nikola. Um, you know, that, that kind of, and and having just hired a transformational guy to, to 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 execute that, I mean, it reminds me of their their hubris um, with Cadillac a couple of years ago, where they were going to move to Soho. Um, it's like, gosh, you, you all just called the peak of the luxury right. market. Um, and so that you know, that's a cluster that of headlines that is significant to me. Um, you know, in terms of, of other headlines like that, um, in the finance space, you, know, you you look at the acquisitions that Morgan Stanley has announced, at, you know, in the last six months. I mean, two enormous asset management acquisitions. And, you know, it feels like um, Morgan Stanley is is behaving consistent with the mood of the asset management industry, feeling like okay, we we are winning the consolidation war. Um, it, it reminds me of of the banking industry roll ups that we saw prior to crises, mm -hmm. and 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 you know, James Gorman is now the the bell of the ball. 
in in you know among his Wall Street peers. Look at all the smart things he's done, and, that, and not to say he hasn't, but he's doubling down in enormous size, you know, with asset values at their at their. Yeah. Peak. Now I feels the same way to me, but. I just was looking for confirmation that I'm not completely insane. <laughs> and, and, and let, me, let me just add one other dimension. Um, you talk about headlines. I think it's really interesting that you're seeing an influx of asset managers, aka BlackRock employees, into the um, Biden mm. White House team. Um, and it reminds me, if we go back to the 60s, you know, you had McNamara from Ford, uh, you know, going into, you know, the, the political space at the top of that. Um, you know, you've had Gary Cohn and, you know, the, the banking folks, um, Paulson. Um, then you have Mnuchin from the private equity space. I think it's a... I, it's sort of like hosting the Olympics. You know, you, you only host the Olympics at the very top. Uh, you only go into political life at the very top. And so I, I'm curious to see if if what we're seeing now is is some kind of bell ringing for asset management. Peter, just on that kind of an, on a slight tangent, but before before we wrap up, I just wanted to get your thoughts on Janet Yellen's likely appointment to Treasury and what what that potentially means. It, it, it feels to me like it's almost necessary at this point that you have a Fed insider at the Treasury, but does, does, does that sign signal anything to you in particular? Um, I think it's an interesting blurring of the line um, between monetary and fiscal policy. Um, and it, and it strikes me in a different respect, but a parallel in what we're seeing over at the Pentagon with the blurring between military and civilian. Um, you know, worlds that historically have been kept deliberately apart seem to be blurring together. And, you know, in both cases, you, you have individuals of, of extraordinary credibility but the question is role. And, and you know, I'm not sure Janet Yellen is the political beast that others who have succeeded in the role as Secretary of the Treasury have brought to the table. Smart, conscientious, you know, she's, she's got lots of positive attributes. Yeah. Um, but the being Secretary of the Treasury is a different role, um, and and so I'm I'm curious to see how that how she plays in that job, particularly coming into it at this particular job. I suspect she's going to be challenged uh, pretty heavily, but she'd probably be happy not to be considered a beast. So. <laughs> Of any kind. Well, look, Peter. Um, thank you so much for for taking this time to chat with us. It's been it's been fascinating as it always is whenever we get a chance to talk. Um, but before before we let you go, perhaps you could let people know the usual stuff: how to follow you, how to find out more about the stuff you do. Because as I say, for me, I, I read your Twitter thing religiously, and there's, there's so much great stuff in there. But also your letter as well. Let people know how they can follow you more. Sure. So um, I'm on Twitter as Peter Atwater. Uh, they can find me either via peteratwater.com um, or through Financial Insights. Uh, Steph and, and Grant know every week I, you know, in good weeks and bad, try to convey what the, the headlines and the messages are saying about sentiment. Yeah, yeah and that's Insights with a Y. Right. Just in case you're looking for it and you can't find it. I'll, I'll tell you. Uh, Peter, thank you so much yes. for your time and hopefully the three of us can actually get together and, and have dinner that together sometime nice. soon. <laughs> that sounds great. Great to see you. All right, you. take care. Thanks again. Thank you. Well, Steph, I have to say, uh, as always, when I, when I talk to Peter, I, it just leaves me with so much to think about and so many, you know, there's so many of these things that I keep seeing floating around. Yeah. Um, and and I think that, that point we talked about there at the end 
is is important this idea that it's never been more obvious how messed up things are but never been more confusing that it doesn't seem to matter and i just i just can't get past but conversations like this make me feel more comfortable that there is a broad uh picture here that is that is clear if you step back you know it's sort of like uh standing in front of a surat painting if you stand too close all you see is all the little dots but if you take a couple yeah. steps back you know peter's really good at showing how all those dots actually that appear completely unrelated form the same picture in a way that's you know really powerful and and vivid when you hear the way he compares yeah. you know the specs to the financials, to, you know, just there's a broad narrative for the political uh, narrative, etc. So, I don't know. Yeah, Peter's, <laughs> I mean, Peter's work to me is like is like having that Barron's cover from a year ago. Yes. You know, having it in real time, because he just points these things out. Um, and and you're right, it does, It I think time frame is, is so important for the people who are watching the market, watching every tick. Mm. It is impossible if you have the luxury of not being forced to do that. And you can step back and take a look at this stuff. Like, you know, that, that your piece on the dollar that we talked about earlier on, stepping back and looking at it gives you a completely different picture of what's happening yeah. than in the trenches, is the DXY going up or down? You're right, you're wrong, right. all that stuff, right. which is which is fine for a, a day or two here and there, but the bigger trends uh, are there if you want to sit back and look at them. But someone like Peter is a useful guide for that stuff. Absolutely. No, and it's uh, going to be interesting to continue to chronicle uh, the next phases in this wild euphoria that we're going through. But ain't yes. that the truth? <laughs> ain't that the truth? Well, plenty for us to talk well, about in future super terrific happy hours. <laughs> that is the good news. Well, that, all that remains is to thank you out there for listening to us. Um, to remind you, if you get a second, to rate and review the podcast on iTunes or whatever app you get your podcast from. That it, every bit helps for us you can find uh me on twitter should you so desire at ttmygh and i'm at s palm boy that's yes, it you are first time. <laughs> uh, and do check out uh peter atwater you find him at peter atwater that's one t well actually two t's but not together in the middle one <laughs> at the beginning one at water you'll figure it out thanks for listening we'll and, see and you next one time in the peter yeah. Oh, yeah. One of the pizza. So th- three teas. <laughs> Cut that. <laughs> Cut that. Cut that. Sayonara. Uh, okay. Happy holidays. So, what did I say that you all strongly feel otherwise? Or where's, oh you know, gosh. where are the gangs? Well, no, that, you know, that's, that's the worrying thing for me. That That's the thing that, that I struggle with because it, it, it's, Never has it seemed simultaneously more clear or more confusing, yeah. more more clear as to what should happen, and more confusing is because it's not happening it exactly. Yeah, it's really it's weird. It's crazy to me. I mean, that's why I asked the question about how far along we are in this euphoria because I keep thinking it can't possibly get any more insane, and then it just goes, you know, another mountain higher. Yeah, it, it feels to me this week like something is in the water. Um, just really mm-hmm. weird. Um, yeah, DoorDash today, it's, you know. Yeah. Um, When's today, Airbnb? But, yeah, we'll have Airbnb, yeah. Yeah, when is that? I've, you, what, I've lost track of what day it is. It's soon though, right? It's next week sometime. Isn't next, it? yeah, okay. It's a week away, yeah. Yeah, that'll be interesting too. But, um, yeah, who knows? I mean, I, something's going to mark the top. I just can't wait to find out what it is. I, I keep thinking it's that, and then up we go again. It's crazy. Well, the crazy thing to me, too, is the reaction to the election. I mean, the vaccine, I understand people feel like, okay, well, now there's a light at the end of the tunnel, and we have a time frame, at least, on when that's going to happen. But, you know, why a, uh, a administration that certainly maybe not directly antagonistic to Wall Street and to business, um, but certainly not as supportive as the prior one, would be greeted with such incredible uh, euphoria. Yeah, my, my take on that is with the Trump administration, businesses felt 
control but no certainty. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a good point. So, and with Biden, they feel certainty but no control. Neither, you know, neither candidate was the, would give either, you know, would give both. Um, and I think the euphoria that we're seeing is that sense of things calming down. But I don't know that they fully appreciate, to your point, what that really means. You know, calm means regulation. Yeah. Calm yeah. means... Um, right, maybe higher you know, taxes. I mean, higher yeah. taxes, yeah. Well, I just saw it while we were chatting. Uh, the headline come across Bloomberg. New York needs to raise taxes. There's a bombshell. Andrew Cuomo says. So, I mean, even if we don't get the corporate tax increase, this is going to be... You know, we're going to see that in states and cities all around the country, for sure. For sure. You're going to have yeah. to. I mean, the, the UK, the Chancellor of the Exchequer is already talking about tax increases in 2022, which seems like a really odd thing to do. I don't know why you're going to tell people right, right. you're going to raise taxes in 2022. Right. Brace Just yourself. keep quiet. Sneak up on it. <laughs> no, no, at, the, at the same time, I keep thinking, if I were governor, I have a state that's struggling. I now is the time to to just say we're filing for bankruptcy. Yes. Yeah. 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 And and we get a competitive advantage. Yep. First yeah. mover. Yeah. I'm, I'm watching. Yeah. You know, I'm watching all these these retailers, and it's it's becoming a it's becoming a requirement to be in business because it's you know if everybody else is doing it, you you got to compete. Yeah. Yeah. Boy, oh boy, I know, world, it's just so perverse, but, you know, maybe like hurts the state that files bankruptcy. Well, their muni will uh, become incredibly valuable. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. Wait till, wait till the Robin Hood right, exactly. Into They're going to get into the munis. Oh, my God. <laughs> oh, boy. All right, Peter. And giving to the poor. Let's see. <laughs> you know, I, I'm really struck by the, this, the Robin Hood name. It's like, did nobody... Right. <laughs> it's very ironic. It is, it ironic, is very ironic. Yes. Oh my gosh. Nothing we discuss during the super terrific happy hour should be considered as investment advice. This conversation is for informational and hopefully entertainment purposes only. So while we hope you find it both informative and entertaining, to say nothing of super and terrific, of course, please do your own research or speak to a financial advisor before putting a dime of your money into these crazy markets. 